Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of our sixth and new season of Music Works. Today we have a very special guest who you've probably already met in previous episodes, Naomi Paul. This time, Naomi is coming to the podcast as the new General Secretary of the MU, being the first woman ever to be elected for this role. Elected on March the 7th, 2022, just one day before International Women's Day, I think we can all agree that Naomi is an inspiration and a role model for all women in the music industry. Her vision as General Secretary is focused on building a stronger, more inclusive MU, and she is approaching these goals with her wonderful background and knowledge. Naomi has worked full-time for the MU since 2009 with a range of senior responsibilities, including three years as Deputy General Secretary. In this episode, we will discuss key topics within the Musicians' Union and the music industry, such as fair pay and working conditions, streaming, buyouts, Brexit and how it's affected musicians, diversity within the industry, and having a safe space to report sexual harassment within the creative industries. Stay tuned to hear more and understand in depth your rights and fair working conditions as a musician in the United Kingdom. But first, here's an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians Union. I'm a member of the Musicians Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK. And it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry. As well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit, the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance, and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. So now let's head over to the Music Works studio where Naomi is waiting. Hi Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Hi, nice to see welcome, you. Welcome, welcome back. Um, so today we're talking to Naomi Pohl, the General Secretary of the Musicians Union. Um, and Naomi's been on the podcast a few times for anyone who's been listening and following. And we've we've followed various issues in the music industry um, with with your your expert comment. And we've also followed your campaign to become General Secretary, which happened very recently. So congratulations on your new role. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited about it. It's great. How long have you been in it now? Um, so I was elected on the 7th of March, which was the night before International Women's Day. So it was brilliant to, that we made the public announcement on International Women's Day, which was very appropriate because I'm the first female general secretary of the MU. Um, so, yeah, and then I took over um, the role officially on about the 23rd of March. Um, so I've been in the role for a good couple of months now. Um and I'm just at the, in the process of getting my top team in place. Um, but I've already started work on quite a lot of our main um, areas of, of concern and some of my election promises. So, yeah, I'm loving every minute of it so far. That's so exciting to hear. Um, so we'll come to those those election promises and campaigns. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. But in, in general, uh, what I wanted to introduce the, the partnership that Music Works now has with the MU, which is really exciting. So um, we're now working together um, on on a partnership with this podcast and being supported by the MU, which means such a lot to us as a uh, tiny podcast to have your backing is, is just fantastic and I know we're really aligned on a lot of things so um, 
it's going to be really great to to work together on kind of getting messages out to the music industry that really matter to us I think so um yeah great yeah we're really excited as well I mean it's we've wanted to put out podcasts for members for a long time um and uh I think we've done a, a handful um but this is brilliant because like you say we're aligned on so many issues um and you'll be able to hopefully access uh MU members to actually come and talk to you about things that are affecting them in their careers and some of the issues that are going on in the industry um so yeah, that, that's brilliant. We're really pleased. Definitely. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll absolutely be making use of your fantastic membership um, with guests on the podcast. So we've got a few exciting things coming up in the series. This is the first episode of season six, um, which is amazing. And um, so we thought we'd start the season um, with a, with an update on, on the MU and um, what it's like under your leadership, Naomi. Great. Well, yeah, so I'd made a lot of promises in my... In my <laughs> So, um, and now I've got five years to try and deliver on them. Um, and a lot of the promises were, you know, around some of the, the key issues that we've been focused on at the union. Um, I mean, we're it's an interesting time because obviously we're coming out of um, coming out of the pandemic, but obviously COVID's still very much with us. So, still potentially issues around cancelled work. Um, we've still got some variation agreements in place so for example in the west end um we've still got a variation agreement in place so our members still have to for example on some shows go in and test early before the show um there's still um some payments that they're missing out on that because we had to give some concessions to the producers to get the shows open so we're still dealing with that sort of thing plus we've still got the impact of brexit that we're very much dealing with on a pretty much daily basis um and the cost of living crisis means that after musicians have not been working for a couple of years, now they're facing rising bills. It's really difficult if you're touring because of accommodation costs, travel costs, fuel costs. Um, so all of this is it's like a heady cocktail of, uh, of difficult stuff that our members are dealing with um, and that the union needs to kind of step up and try and assist with as well, wherever we can. Um, yeah, and some of our ongoing campaigns, obviously, I've been focusing on as well. So we've already had a couple of brilliant internal meetings. We had an away day for our staff for two days um, where I set out what our plans are for the next couple of years. Um, and we had a day where all of our officials and organisers who um, look after our collective bargaining agreements, they do our negotiations. We all got together and sat around the table and talked about some of the problems that we're facing and what our strategy will be to try and improve paying conditions. Oh, interesting. Are you able to share any of that or is that still <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. discussion stage? Yeah, I'd love to hear. <clears throat> yeah, so, I mean, this was number one election promise really was to try and tackle paying conditions because as I've said, it's such a difficult climate for our members. We're still really worried about musicians leaving the industry. Um, and so what's forming in my mind at the moment is, is a campaign around better quality work for our members. Um, so it's not just about pay, although obviously our members haven't earned for a long period and a lot of rates of pay have been frozen as well for a few years. Um, so pay is definitely a significant issue, but also thinking about how musicians are actually treated at work and thinking about all the conditions that sit alongside the pay. So, you know, we've had feedback from some of our freelance members that in some cases, because the expenses aren't very good, it's actually, and they end up subsidizing doing the work. 
So they might be offered a gig somewhere and they'd absolutely love to do it, but the gig fee isn't enough um, combined with the expenses to actually make it worthwhile when you're paying for expensive Airbnbs um, or hotels and the train fares are too expensive and you're trying to car share, but then you've got the fuel prices to, to deal with. So, I mean, yeah, there's cases where um, members literally are having to turn down work because they just can't afford to do it. It's just so, so difficult, isn't it? Because then that also, it, this this just issue just touches on everything that I know that, you know, you, you stand for and we've talked about before, like um, issues with diversity, issues with mm. um, well-being in the industry, you know, the, the situation that happens when these when these gigs aren't well paid enough and when situations like that occur is that um, it's only the people who can afford to do them that do them and it cuts mm. out a whole um, a whole area of the industry. Well, I am worried that diversity, you know, we've started to make some progress on diversity and inclusion in the music industry. And I'm worried that coming out of the pandemic, we could easily slip backwards. Yeah. Um, there's already been some publicity around festival lineups not being very diverse this year. Um, and also I'm worried that when everybody's desperate for work, it's, there's, you know, there could be some sort of um, backlash against the diversity initiatives. Um, yeah. because you know there's not enough work to go around so everybody's competing for for these jobs um and everybody's struggling financially so it's really difficult so I'm, I'm keen to avoid that I think we've just got to still try and move the diversity agenda forward and make sure that everybody's got opportunities I mean we want a music industry in the future that is fully diverse because that means better British music at the end of the day absolutely and there's an issue that I've seen in um, some programming decisions being very mainstream and not very diverse, but that there is a genuine challenge for promoters and sort of um, concert and opera organisers in that sense that they haven't made any money for several years either. <laughs> and they feel yeah. that by programming the, the famous and the same repertoire, that that's a safer bet for um, bringing in audiences and rebuilding financially. So it's not that I'm not sympathetic to that challenge, but it is, um, I think that could possibly, well, definitely like um, reduce the amount of um, risks that people are willing to take in, in terms of increasing diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of what, yeah, what, um, music they put out and you know yeah that's a real problem um, and there is going to be a lack of public money uh, because um, the levelling up agenda which we support in principle because of course we want to see more money in, in the regions um, but it's going to have a potentially devastating impact on some of the companies in London and also the Arts Council seem to have a real focus on funding um, community music but that could mean more money for amateur projects and less money for professional work, which is another real concern for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so difficult. It's essentially not enough money to go around, is there? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, lots of challenges there. And so do you have any, any insights on the potential solutions that the MU is looking at? Well, I mean, we're going to be focusing really hard on um, lobbying around arts funding and music education. Again, this is something I talked about in my campaign. Um, music education, we've seen some improvements in Wales and in Scotland. Um, there's actually in Wales, they've committed to have a review of visiting music tutors paying conditions, which is brilliant. Yeah, We'd love that. to see. Yeah, love yeah. to see that in England. 
um, but we're still awaiting the national plan in England. So I think we're going to the political party conferences, we're going to uh, Conservative Party conference and um, Labour Party conference. We're going to have a stand and we're going to have an event at each of those and we're going to focus heavily on music education. But mm. I also really want to talk about arts funding because, as you say, there's not enough money to go around. Um, we need to, I mean, I sort of hark back to the days of the Arts Council foc focusing on um, excellence. And I think we need to bring back a bit of that, you know, we need professional work to have funding. Otherwise, um, careers are going to fall away. You know, mm. if, if amateur work is being um, favoured over professional work, that's really not a good uh, picture for musicians or the music industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, it's it's difficult because I'm so I'm kind of coming at this from the I've, we've been doing a lot of um, arts council applications and funding applications for various projects in my company and mm -hmm. so very ensconced in what the um, what the requirements are and some of them have been successful and some of them haven't and knowing that more and more we just have to embody this mindset of sometimes or often in fact really great projects that are re just absolutely great and basically flawless still don't get funded because there just isn't enough money yeah. um and it's difficult when we we do a lot of work to tailor them to the funding requirements obviously which is sort of the point of having the funding requirements but then i don't mm. know it's it's just um it's hard to come up with something that's that fits everything that fits the funding requirements that fits what the artistic vision is that fits the need to employ people you know um you know absolutely pro amateur music and community music making but yeah i agree the um there just what well, there just isn't enough money to go around no that's the problem yeah. so yeah i mean we want to try and have more influence at local level as well mm. um and regionally so we're not just talking to um ministers uh in westminster um mm. i actually asked for a meeting with nadine dorries and unfortunately she's uh, not available to meet with me which is a shame because I was hoping to try and get her on board with some of this stuff I mean mm. it's, if you feel like you're talking to a brick wall it's just right how can we go around the government and try and get some movement in other areas but very difficult mm. that is difficult yeah absolutely I was at the um, ABO conference a few months ago and um, there was a speaker there from Scottish Parliament who who said the same thing that um getting to speak to anyone in Westminster about matters of culture was uh mm. not easy. No. Yeah. Okay, so a challenge then for your first uh <laughs> Absolutely first year as um I'm sure by then you'll have it all sewn up. <laughs> to be getting on with, yeah. I'm yeah, not 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 uh, not a quiet job, I'm sure. Um so what else is burning a hole in your agenda then? <laughs> well, so I mentioned, I think, the impact of Brexit. So yeah. um, I want us to be um, a hub of information for musicians who are touring internationally, so not just in Europe. Um, but clearly there's a real need for that guidance. There's a real need for clarity around what the rules are. Um, and um, I feel like we've got the expertise to... To provide that advice and guidance so we've been talking to the government about potentially um having a brexit hub of some kind um and the mu could could provide that and um, so we've actually we've got, got a colleague called dave webster who's been working with us a really long time he's absolutely brilliant he's really tapped into the live sector and he's going to be um leading on this work so he's 
I've created a new role um, head of international, which he'll be um, fulfilling. And that means he'll be able to build relationships internationally. He'll be able to help with um, consultations on international trade agreements. And he's been at the forefront, really, of trying to get to the bottom of the Brexit issue. So um, on an almost daily basis, we find out something new or one of our members reports a problem that they've had at a border. So you think you've got a grip on the situation and then suddenly something new comes out. So one of our members recently was traveling, I think they were on Eurostar um, and they were fined because they were taking an instrument with them and they didn't have proof of ownership. Um, they didn't have proof of ownership with them. Mm -hmm. So now we're advising members that they need to take proof of ownership, but this is something that we did not foresee coming. Nobody had told us it was a requirement. It's no. certainly most members haven't been asked for it. Well, um, that's the thing. There's no consistency, is there? It's um, that's the problem. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I travelled recently, not for work, so um, and found that my airline was asking me for COVID nineteen documentation for the country that I was going into, and then I kept checking on the website, and it was like you don't need anything for this country. And I know that the the airline was asking in general, not specifically, and so then I just had this like massive sort of red exclamation mark on my um boarding pass app thing being like hasn't submitted covid information and then i was like oh, don't, they don't want any <laughs> it's just so confused like luckily it was fine it didn't yeah. cause me any problems but i was really stressed about it so you know i realized this is me sharing that experience when touring musicians have been dealing with this for <laughs> for oh. years now but yeah it's um it's it, the anxiety levels of, about this just really don't help do they and when you're thinking back again about quality of work and thinking about making decisions about travel and whether something is worth it financially there's also the um the kind of impact of of all of this uncertainty isn't there yeah and the fact that you might have to pay for a visa or work permit and you mm. obviously have to also pay for a carnet to cover your instruments and equipment so yeah. um yeah it's it's an absolute headache um, and I really want us to play a part in, in delivering that clarity that musicians need. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you're really paying a lot of attention to detail with that. The fact that you're picking up on all these individual cases and individual reports of problems. Um, that's really great to hear. Yeah, difficult. It is. So, yeah, Brexit's difficult. Um, yeah. We're still campaigning to improve the streaming um, economics. So trying to in improve royalties on streaming for musicians. I'm also hoping that we might get an uplift in the uh, minimum session rate, which has been, um, it was 120 for five years, and then it was 130 for five years. Um, it's been really difficult to try and increase that in the past with the record labels. But I think because of our campaigning around streaming, the labels are under pressure at the moment, and there's a possibility that we might get a decent uplift in the session fee, which would be great. Um, mm -hmm. And it helps, I think we should be working on paying conditions across all of the sectors. This is why I had this um, strategy meeting, because I think otherwise we've got people negotiating agreements in, in little silos. And I think we've got to have a really joined up approach to try and improve the picture across the board. Um, so yeah, hoping for a better session fee, but also still really campaigning hard to get some royalties on streaming for musicians. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like we are making some progress. Um, you might have seen that Sony has announced, well, all the three major labels have announced that they are um, going to uh, pay streaming royalties after 20 years if the artist hasn't recouped. Um, right. And Sony have agreed that they're going to do that on a rolling basis. So anybody who hits 20 years, 
will will start receiving royalties. Um, is this 20 years, 20 years of what? 20 years of being unrecouped. Right. So if you're an artist who got a big advance, um, mm. you may never recoup um, and mm. get to a point where you're actually receiving royalties. So basically the artist has to cover all of the costs of the upfront uh, recording. Um, and usually, because they're expected to cover 100% of that, just from their royalties, um, it can lead to people never never getting to a point where they're receiving royalties from their music yeah. even yeah. if their music is very popular and successful yeah okay interesting so that's a big change then mm. to commit to that i'm working out how this ties in with um the experience of people who are doing live streams because um so i had a conversation with prs yesterday about um their live stream licenses that you can buy if you're a promoter or a venue and you're going to do a live stream you can buy a license to to live stream that live stream that on their website now um how does that relate to what you're talking about you know the the musicians receiving the money well the thing is, it was a bit controversial when PRS um, introduced licenses for uh, live streaming. But of course, it's, it's a broadcast effectively. So I mm -hmm. think the backlash initially from the live sector was that um, everyone saw a live streamed gig as a gig. But actually mm -hmm. from PRS's point of view, from a copyright perspective, it's not a gig, it's a broadcast because you're recording something and you're putting it out so mm. I think it's really appropriate that there's copyright licensing in place and and you know obviously that money filters through to the songwriters so it's important but um yeah it's and it'll be really interesting to see if live streaming uh, of gigs actually does continue because um you know now that the live sector's back up and running it'll be really interesting to see if, if that's a model I think everybody news that they might continue and this might be the new way that people attend gigs but i'm not sure that's going to be the case actually and i don't think it works financially because if you stream a gig once online anyone can watch it anywhere whereas if you're touring you could do multiple gigs and they could it could be the same gig and you get a new crowd each night and your people are paying more so you're earning more so i, I, I can't see us moving to live streaming i don't know what you think no, I, I agree. I think um, one thing I have noticed is an, a continuation of hybrid events where, like, mm. for instance, I've been to theatre, I've seen theatre runs where there has been a live stream date as well. So you'll there'll be a week of shows and one of the shows will be live streamed. And I think it has these huge benefits for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to go. And especially for more kind of localised things like a run of theatre, for instance, where I live in Newcastle, I'm specifically thinking of something that was at Northern Stage, which is a very... Like I'm not sure that that particular show would have toured or if it did, it wouldn't have been a very extensive tour. So it means that that work that's pretty much focused on Newcastle is available um, or widely. But I think in terms of replacing live with streaming, I agree. I don't think that will happen at all. I think any anybody who's into um, going to any kind of live entertainment is more than aware of the difference of being in, um, in the room where something is taking place and the energy that that creates and so on and so forth um so yeah whether i mean you know i suppose those are the, it's that maybe the technology will continue to be used to to make things more available but yeah i i don't see um street live streaming replacing live events no absolutely not no um, no but it's interesting because i suppose the 
the thing is the PRS licenses you're talking about, it's the copyright licensing that leads to songwriters getting royalties. And again, it's a broadcast. And we would say that streaming, um, audio streaming like Spotify, if you're sticking on a playlist, it's just like a radio broadcast. So mm. that's why we argue that it should get royalties um, that are similar to the, the royalties that we get on radio. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every, at the end of all of these topics, it's like, well, that sounds hard. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's really good to to get into these issues. And the other thing that I wanted to say before and, and didn't was um, what you said about looking at all of these different things and and kind of campaigning for them all simultaneously. I think that's so valuable, not just because they're all issues that should have a unified approach or a considered approach but also because I I my experience of working with individual musicians is that they quite often will have a very deep understanding of one element of the industry which is where they spend most of their time working and less so of another area so that we quite often get questions like oh I've been asked to do this piece of work what should I charge and I'm sort of like well you know charge what you would charge for any piece of work because it's you and you're yeah. working um you know within the the kind of like is it a workshop is it a performance etc but you know that I think that um the union seeing the big picture of this and and campaigning on that level is really important for visibility of of the industry as a whole for musicians as well yeah and if you're an orchestral musician and it's difficult to get a pay rise because your orchestra's had standstill funding for a long time but then you might be recorded under the BPI agreement that we have that covers session work and so if we can get those fees up it does help orchestral players as well so it should it should all be joined up because our members do have portfolio careers and they do tend to work across different areas of the industry um, even mm. if they focus mainly on one area. Absolutely I mean I happen to have heard an anecdotal story about a, 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 a friend of mine who sings in churches um, a lot and she did does some gigs at a, in a church that usually only hires men and the rate for those um, services is much higher than the mixed gender services in the same church. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. We still come across that sort of thing all the time. Yeah, it's mm. outrageous. It's crazy, and it's so, it is actually quite visible. You know, it's it, mm. as you say, people have these portfolio careers, and not that it would be, it's completely wrong whether it's visible or not. But you know, people do know about it, yeah, and see it. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm still very hot on um, diversity in general um, and uh, representation. Um, and I, I listened to this brilliant podcast the other day, um, and it was a black woman talking about how white women um, can be allies. And she was saying, you know, as a white woman, if you have a platform, then what the best thing you can do as an ally is step aside and give your platform to a black woman. Um, mm. And I just thought, isn't that brilliant? So I'm very much keeping that in mind, um, just making sure that, you know, I'm now in a position where I do have a voice um, and I want to make sure that I use that. Um, but also when it's appropriate, I step aside and give give other people the opportunity to speak who might not have the same platform. Um, so that's what's going to be one of the things hopefully I, I do as general secretary. And in terms of what's changing at the union, um, obviously diversity is a big uh, issue for me. And I want to make sure that our 
committees are more representative of all of our members. Um, I want to make sure that we have more diverse chairs of our committees because there was a point where the chairs of, of all of our committees tended to be older white men who'd been in the union a long time. So they built up that experience and they tended to be voted for because they were well known. You know, it's those kind of changes that we've got to make, which are gradual, but actually there's things you can do to speed that up. Um, so providing training um, on chairing, which we're doing at the moment, we've got some great equalities networks. So we've got more informal spaces where people can come together and share experiences. And then we can kind of build up to them standing for a committee and then eventually chairing a committee. So like trying to bring more voices through, I think is really important. Yeah, that's really important. And in, in, I have no idea if this is true of the union, but in my experience of committees, the people that end up running them by default because they've seen themselves, they've seen people like them running them before and feel like they're able to do it. They don't have things like training or, um, you know, pre preparation in that way. So although they end up running them, they don't, you know, whether they do it well or not, is very much down to the individual. Um, yeah. So that's, that sounds really, really positive. Um, one of the things that we've talked about before is that the union um, in general, it, it has um, an ongoing image challenge, doesn't it? In terms of like, there's still a lot of people in the music industry who think of it as being sort of like not really for them um, yeah. for various reasons. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, so I think um, it's, you know, there can be a perception that we're, focused on the really organized workplaces because it's easier easier for us to get into an orchestra where we can actually you know people are potentially employed mm. we've got an employer that we can negotiate with we've got 17 musicians who are there in that space it's much easier to organize so we're probably more visible in those spaces than the less organized kind of freelance world um and particularly young people who might be making music in their bedroom or you know doing like really small scale gigs um, that they might not come across us. So I think that is a big challenge. And we've got to make sure that um, the trade union movement in general, that we don't just start to hemorrhage members over time because young people aren't aware of us and aren't joining. Um, and yeah, certainly the musicians union will have that challenge as well. But we're so relevant and I think more relevant than ever. Um, and there's so many issues that we cover and we're so, you know, there's, we had a really uh, big um, case recently where we got a massive uh, settlement for members. Unfortunately, I can't talk about the details of that. Yeah. You know, almost every day there's wins going on um, on behalf of our members. And it, sometimes it's big and sometimes it's little, you know, managing to get a feedback for somebody who did a gig and didn't get paid um, or giving somebody legal advice um, to help them make a, a good decision about the next step in their career. You know, there's so many things that, that we do that are valuable to all musicians, um, including the freelancers. It's just we have to try and get the message out. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, a lot of these things are very delicate and confidential. And so it's very difficult to get the message out um, about that sort of thing. Um, and while we're on difficult and delicate and confidential, should we talk about the uh, the safe space and the sexual harassment work that you're doing? Or the... Yeah. Yeah. So again, um, yeah, all of these issues are really challenging and really hard and really yeah. difficult for our members. But we are in a lot of these areas, we are making some progress. So with the sexual harassment issue, as you know, I've been campaigning on this issue for years um, and also dealing with a lot of cases behind the scenes uh, at the union. And um, we've got to a point now where the government 
has actually taken an interest in the issue, a bit like um, with music streaming. So they've convened roundtable meetings, which have been chaired by an organisation called Creative UK, which represents uh, people across the whole of the creative industries. And they've been talking about setting up an independent standards authority. So the independent standards authority is essentially going to be a place where people can go to make a report and there'll be an independent investigation, which is really important because if you've not got one employer or engager involved, you can have two freelancers who work together on a project making one makes a complaint against the other and who who's there to adjudicate there's no policy or procedure in place it's very tricky absolutely and when you think about how tricky it is to uphold these sorts of things even within organizations that have hr departments and grievance policies it's so much more difficult when there's none of that in place absolutely so that it's really positive that this is going to be Mm. set up it's going to be set up for tv and film first and then it's going to sort of roll out to um music and fashion and theatre so we'll see how it goes with tv and film but i think it is really important that it's happening and it's a sign that this issue is being taken very seriously that's an enormous piece of progress yeah Um, slightly baffling that it's new now but nonetheless it is you know if you you step back from obviously being very far in it (laughs) you think really this is the first time this is happening but yeah it's absolutely amazing that, that that's possible and is um do you know what the time scale is of it starting to be in place for tv and film well i think that the broadcasters are on board so i think it's going to be um i don't know exactly when it's going to launch but i know that they uh that progress is being made there so i'm i'm hopeful that it will launch this year and that music will get it next year um wow. obviously if you're somebody who's experienced sexual harassment in the industry and you're waiting to have this body that can um investigate it that feel, next year feels a really long way off. Um, so we'll be lobbying to get it in place as soon as possible. Um, but yeah, that's it's positive that it's planned and it's happening. Um, and there's other bits of movement in the industry as well. So we've been looking at a code of practice, which will sit across the whole of the music industry. Um, and also some of the organisations like the major record labels have actually got artist welfare teams now. So again, I I just feel that people are starting to finally acknowledge that this is a problem and they have to take action. Yeah, absolutely. Are you able to share what would happen if, um, for instance, someone was to go either to this body or perhaps to the MU safe space, which is obviously already in existence, and we can mention the details of that in a minute. Um, for anyone that's not already aware, what can people expect to actually happen? Like, let's say you have one of those really naughty situations where it's a a, poten- a potentially influential or powerful person and you really don't feel like you can say anything, that kind of thing. Are you able to give some details about what people can expect if they come yeah. to you? Yeah. Well, so there's two elements to safe space. There's the fact that we encourage people to report to us so that we have a really good picture of what's going on, what kind of issues Um, exist in the industry where they exist and that's all fed into our campaigning work Um, so that's so a lot of people report to us and they actually don't want um, us to take action or they don't um, they don't even give an email address for us to respond they just want us to know that something's happened Um, Mm. but then when people do want us to take action if both the complainants and the person who's being complained of if they're both members 
then in cases of sexual harassment, we actually do have a member's disciplinary procedure which can take um, take effect. So if somebody's complaining about another member, um, there's a possibility we could go down a disciplinary route. And we do have a um, we have a committee who can sit and hear the details of it. Um, I can get somebody externally to do a proper investigation. So we do do that. If the other person isn't a member, then unfortunately the disciplinary procedure is neither here nor there. Um, so then it's a case of, you know, where we've had issues of sexual harassment, sometimes we've written to the person's employer, if there is one, or we've written to the organisation that organised the event. So there are ways that we can, uh, you know, take, take these issues up. Um, mm. And in another case, for example, one of our members was unable to go ahead with a series of uh, performances because of a sexual harassment issue. And what we ended up doing was getting her paid for the work, even though she'd had to withdraw because we said, this has happened. It's totally unacceptable. You know, those kind of cases, we really what we what we look at is survivor led uh, action. So we always talk to the person about what it is, what it is they want to achieve. Um, and a lot of time, what they really want to achieve is to stop it happening to anyone else in the future. And that's where, again, the campaigning work comes in. Yeah, it's just that, that two pronged approach. Is, and it, it really is. I think it's powerful to hear that it is worth reporting, even if there's nothing that you actually no action that you want to take, um, mm. because that is that just feels like a, a really sort of good and purposeful thing to be able to do in a world where mm. reporting has been so challenging for so many reasons yeah yeah do you want to give the details of the safe space and how people can use it yes yeah, so um you can go onto our website and um if you type in sexual harassment to the search box then all of the resources come up there um but if you want to just email it's safe space at vmu.org um, and there's only a couple of us there that have access to the safe space inbox. Most of the cases come through me. Um, and if we can assist, we will. Um, and if someone just wants to report something because they want to uh, contribute to the campaigning work, they can do that there. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and is there anything else that you are up to that you'd like to talk about? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm up to a million and one thing, yeah. um, but I think those are kind of the big headlines. The other one that we talked about, um, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast, but I think we probably talked about it offline, is the Composers Against Buyouts campaign. Yes, I was just which, thinking we've not talked about that on this podcast yet. Yeah, so that's um, an exciting new campaign from us as mm. well. And really, it links to fixed streaming because it's about royalties. So mm. Composers Against Buyouts is about media composers, so someone writing music for TV um, or film where potentially their rights could be bought out and they might not get any PRS royalties going forward. Yeah. We are completely against that. Um, we think that you should your PRS royalties should be sacrosanct um, and there's no excuse for it and it's just, an, it's just basically corporations gobbling up money that should be going to creators. So part of it is an education piece, trying to talk to young people who are entering the industry about what their rights are and what, what they should expect. Um, but also there's an element potentially of talking to the industry about what a fair contract looks like and trying to push back against some of these buyout deals. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's that's so, um, so important and so positive to hear about as well. Looking forward to seeing how that uh, develops. I think we're going to have an episode specifically on that later this season 
great um so that'll be really good um great and my last question then i'm wondering if um, you know having thank you so much for going so candidly into all of these massive challenges that are um that are facing the industry and the union and its members do you have a message for anyone listening perhaps someone who's thinking of joining the union or wondering why they should well if you're thinking of joining definitely please do um because this is a collective effort and at the end of the day it's not something that mu staff and officials can do single-handedly it's about um it's about musicians standing up and saying actually we won't accept these things and we want a better deal um we're going to uh, i'm going to a tuc march this saturday so tomorrow um where i'm going to be marching to say we deserve better and that's what this is about it's about uh, our members coming together and saying what's unacceptable and, and what practice they just won't accept so yeah please join i had a lovely message from a member this week who said um that he'd been thinking of cancelling his MU membership and then he read my um, manifesto which was in our latest magazine and he said he wanted to stay to be part of it so I, I hope there's a lot of musicians out there who feel that way and want to be part of this going forward. Absolutely I'm sure. Thank you so much for all the valuable information goals and insights that you've shared with us today Naomi. It's incredible to listen to and discuss the issues faced by musicians in the United Kingdom, several of which are widely spoken about, but some that we've never thought about before. A vital topic covered today is the rough paying conditions that a lot of musicians face. This issue has been particularly worsened by the pandemic and is one of the major challenges for the MU. It's so great to see how you're effectively working alongside the government by lobbying an increase in funds towards music education and how this has already had positive consequences in Wales and Scotland. Another strong fight for the MU is diversity within the industry, which you have also explained thoroughly in this episode. Unfortunately, COVID has also had a negative impact on this aspect, but it's relieving to see how you're positioning this as a priority in the MU's agenda. Very interesting to ask ourselves what we can do in our position, perhaps as a white woman or a male musician, in order to open up a space for underrepresented performers and composers. Finally, we're also very pleased to listen to you talk about your efforts to create a safe space to report sexual harassment within the industry and that this has had an impact in the government, who are now planning to implement a structure that allows people in TV and film, music, fashion and other industries to report these cases. If any of our listeners needs to report a sexual harassment incident, you can do so through the Musicians' Union directly by typing sexual harassment on the search bar or by emailing the following email address directly safe space at the mu.org your reports will be treated with confidentiality once again thank you so much for your time and efforts to improve our industry naomi thank you for having me